Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's episode includes some thematic material. I want you to be aware before you listen in the presence of little ears. Today's episode is brought to you by Zimmerman Builders. They are located in Roanoke, Illinois, and they serve customers in Woodford, Tazewell, Peoria, and McLean counties. You can find them on the web at ZimmermanBuildersInc.com or on Facebook at Zimmerman Builders INC. My guest today is Peter Mudabazi. Peter is an entrepreneur, an international advocate for children, and the founder of Now I Am Known. He is going to share his unconventional story of coming to be a single foster dad in America after escaping an abusive and hopeless time as a child. Peter recounts God's personal kindness, masterful plan, and his power to overcome evil with good. This is a conversation you definitely won't want to miss. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Peter. Thank you so much. My name is Peter Mutabazi, and I'm really excited to chat with you, Laura. And Peter, will you begin by taking us way back to your early childhood? And as much as you're comfortable sharing, will you tell us what it was like for you as a child? Yeah, so I grew up in Uganda in a small little village at the border of Uganda and Rwanda. And, you know, it's hard to explain to, to a, you know, to an American, you know, think about like I did not have a hope or a future. You know, I didn't have a name until when I was two years old. Why? Because for every 100 children who were born in my village, 50 would 50 to 60 would die before the age of two. So most moms didn't name their kids. And that was so for me that my mom didn't did not name me until when I was two years old. And and she called me a gift given to me by God. That's what my last name is. And so, you know, there wasn't really any glimpse of hope. It's, you know, think about if a mom can't feed you for a day, how do they really tell you to dream? You know, uh, poverty wasn't just us as a family, but it was everyone around us. Me and other kids in the village would walk from the age of four, three to four miles to get water one way, you know, and that would do it twice. So there was no time to be a child. There was no time to dream because all you knew was you had to participate in providing for the family. At four, I would go babysit with my, you know, for my siblings while my mom is digging the garden or I would help. So there wasn't really any time to be a kid, but rather to survive. And that became my, my, my life at the age of four. But also I began to visit other families. So I would see other dads who were different from my dad. You know, my dad was just abusive in every shape, form you could think of. You know, I never had a kind word from my dad. All I had was, Peter, you'll never mount anything. Peter, I wish you were never born so I don't have to feed you. So for me as a kid, that's all I had. Poverty could have taken my life. But also inside my own family, the abuse was just so bad. And the hard part, they also came towards my mom. So I could not, you know, like you have one parent that loves you, but yet, you know, you can't protect her. But also she got the beating because she was advocating for you. So for me, had you told me to dream, I did not want to dream because today was hard enough that I really didn't see tomorrow. So for 10 years, that just became my life uh, until at 10 when I decided to just say, look, 
I know my father is going to take my life, but I'm not going to let him do. I'd rather die in the hands of a stranger. And that's why I chose. I'd never been 20 miles away, and that's why I chose to run away. And I went 500 kilometers away and ended up in Kampala. Wow. And in Kampala, what was your experience like there? And what did you arrive into when you ran away? So I got on the, you know, of course, I, I didn't know where I was going. So when I went to the bus station, I asked the lady like, hey, which bus goes the farthest, you know, and the lady showed me. So I got on the bus. Of course, you know, 16 hours later, I found myself in Kampala, you know, and quickly I learned that there was no hope or future for me, but to be a street kid. So I joined the street kids, you know, found kids of my age mates and they trained me how to survive, you know. So really ate from the garbage, you know, slept under the sewers of Kampala and life was just miserable in every shape form you could think of, you know. At the age of 11, I think I buried four of my of my colleagues because they would eat, you know, uh, food that was poisoned or that was acidic and they would lose their lives or we would sleep under the buses or under the cars and sometimes they would drive away without checking and some of my colleagues lost their lives so in the midst of that like there wasn't any hope or anything I could say like wow maybe I can make it through the day no that was just really miserable and, and the abuse as well it was different though you know I was being abused by by strangers who did not know me but all I knew was I was garbage. You know, they treated me more like a straight animal. And, you know, and I believed it because I smelled like one. I, I scavenged through the garbage like any other dog. And, you know, if you've been to Africa, I mean, dogs are everywhere. So I think I believe what they said because that's what I looked like. Uh, and that became my life for five years. And as a young boy at that age, had you ever even heard about Jesus? No, at least so, you know, you know, I grew up from a Roman Catholic family, but I think I resented that I could see my father every night, she, you know, he would go pray uh, with, you know, the rosary or he would she, he would beat us if we did pray. You know, we saw grandma, but to me, it didn't make sense that you can be that godly, but be, you know, be abusive in some way. So I didn't want anything to do with or listen to it, you know, when my abuser was in some way religious at the same time, you know. So I think I, de you know, I kept a deaf ear not wanting to know because it, did, it didn't make sense at all. But I think I had heard here and there. Sure, of course, that didn't make sense. Such an opposite picture that you were experiencing from your father. And will you just explain a little bit more what the culture was of your village growing up? Yes. Well, I come from a village, you know, where men are, you know, are the, the top of, uh, they're the first class citizen, then women second and children third. So most children were never had seen or known in so many ways, you know, but also men had the right to abuse whoever they wanted. I mean, they would marry two wives, whatever they wanted, like almost they had a pass to do whatever they wanted. And that's kind of the culture that I grew up in, you know, as a kid that I was useless, but at the same time, to, to look back and say, well, that's what they were training me to be, to truly see others as second-class citizens uh, in some way uh, was really uh, my culture, very communal, you know, that we depended on each other for sure, uh, but everyone around me was, was poor uh, in every way possible, you can imagine. And I just remember being stunned at one part in your book when you said that Nobody cares if a man would beat his wife and children, and some people would even come out to be spectators. Yes, 
in no sense, you know, as I shared before, you know, the men had a right to, to, to do whatever they wanted. You know, they paid dowry to, to get married. So if I paid for a woman, so I have the right to use them as property. And I think that was the, the negative that I really saw in my culture on how men in some way had the right to treat, especially wives, as though they were just a commodity, you know, something I can I can beat up and no one can question that. That, that was really hard to watch that that was happening to my own mother uh, in a sense. Mm-hmm. But that's also helpful to hear the positive sides of the communal living. And let's fast forward, though, back to Kampala. What are some details that might be helpful for us to be aware of for what it was like to live as what you call a street kid? Yeah, so, you know, so streets, streets or, uh, in Kampala are the same typical urban, you know, uh, <laughs> cities. So think of you have all buses from all places of villages, towns, they all basically converge in one place. So you have people buying produce, you have people buying products, you have commotion as in 24 hours, people selling, you know, uh, used uh, um, clothes, people selling, you know, cooked food, you know, people who stole food sitting on the other side. I mean, there was just this just commotion to this day. If you go to any city in Africa, yes, it's, it's hard to imagine just what, what goes on there. And that became my journey. That became my life because it was easier to hide among so many, you know, but also that so many that came in to buy things, they needed help. And that's how they abused us. They used cheaper, you know, they, was, they promised us food. Hey, if you help me from point B to point C, I'm going to give you food, you know. But most of them, they would just drive away without giving us food. So that was really the world where I came from. But also to be safe, I needed to be in a busy place, you know, because the abusers, would, you know, if you're in, in, in a in a quiet place, they would find you. So uh, it was easier to stay productive. But also, I think we wanted to earn the right to be on the streets, that we would help people. So we had a strategy. So me and my other 10, 15 kids would steal different things. So I would steal bananas and someone else would steal potatoes. And we didn't take many. We'd just take one. But at the end of the day, we'd have enough to eat for all of us, you know. So that was the strategy. Through helping people, it was easier to steal in some way. But also, they used us for cheap labor. So we thought, there's nothing wrong I'm doing. Well, you're using me. I get to have something to eat. I guess it's, uh, you know, uh, equal terms in some way. And that was really life for me as a street kid. But also, we were treated more like straight animals. You know, I lived on the streets for four and a half years. No one ever asked me what my name was. You know, we were more of the nobodies, the the unwanted, you know, the people who were deserved to be called by their names. And that's how we felt. So for, for us, life was really in some way on an hourly basis that you didn't want to see tomorrow because today was hard enough for what you're going through uh, that you had to survive. You know, we didn't sleep. We would sleep maybe for an hour uh, in the night because it wasn't safe being, you know, sleeping because someone could pour on you acid or they could pour on you hot water or coal. You know, it, it could be anything that we wanted to be alert at all times as street kids to just keep safe. Uh, and that was my journey. And that's almost just unimaginable and thinking really of all the pressures and fears that you had to experience. But your stories are so captivating, both in what you're sharing now and your book was just fascinating from the beginning to the end. But will you share the story of how the kindness of one stranger changed your life? 
Yes, you know. So as three kids, remember, as I shared, we would steal to survive. So one day I saw this gentleman who was wearing clothes. We would pick up clues. So he wore, he was wearing khakis, wearing glasses, uh, wearing good clothes. So that meant that he was well to do in some way. So for me, he was a target. I'm going to follow him. If he buys something, I'm going to help him so I can steal something from him. So that was my really sense of following him. So I followed him. And as soon as he bought like a bunch of bananas and potatoes, I was like, sir, I want to help you. Where's your car? And he looked at me. He said, hey, put my things down. What is your name? And I think for me, that made me stop. One, it scared me that someone wanted to know my name. Remember, for everyone who was kind, was abusive as well. But two, he kind of really brought my mother's memories because my mom called me by my name. You know, that's just, I mean, we're all called by our names when you're anywhere or when you're, you're somewhere and hear someone calling your, <laughs> your kid's name. Even if you know they're not there, you look back and say, wait, is my child here? So our names is what we identify as who we are. But for me, him wanting to know my name in some way made me remind, you know, made me go back to my own mother. Like, wait, that's what my mom would call me. So anyway, I told him I'm Peter and he, you know, I carried his things. And before I could steal, he gave me something to eat. So he left, you know, again, someone kind didn't mean that you are drawn to them. To us, it was a sign of danger. So I walked away. And so I saw him the next the next week. He called me by my name. And that was really cool. That someone knows me by my name, that I was always looking forward every time he came to the city. And so I saw the pattern. He would always come on Monday between 5 and 7. You know, so in some way I knew Monday I don't have to steal. Monday someone get to me, get to recognize me and call me by my name. Monday, it's the moment I feel for a moment. But I'm a human being. And that became my journey. And he fed me for one year and a half. And, and one day he said, Peter, if you have an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? And I laughed. I was like, this man is a joke. Like, come on. I'm a street kid. I am garbage. I will never mount anything. That's what I was told. I stink. I smell. I am no, but I am at the bottom of anything on earth. Why would you say, or why would you think I want to go to school? Like that's, that is not for me. It's like telling, basically I try to, to really measure it this way. It's like telling any regular American, like, hey, they are sending people to the moon. Would you like to go? You know, I mean, how, how many of us go to bed thinking, man, I wish I could be chosen to go to the moon? Nobody, you know? So for me, as a street kid, garbage never amounts to anything. There's no way I could ever imagine that I would ever go to school because that, that wasn't for me. But I did not qualify in every shape form to be considered as anyone who would ever go to school. You know, as I said, from my own father's words, I was garbage. I would never mount anything. He wished he never fed me. On the streets, I had the same, you know. So for him to say, would you like to go to school? It was more like a joke, like, are you serious, you know? But he insisted, you know, he said, uh, well, if you go to school, here's what you'll find, food. I was like, food, are you sure? So for me, the attraction of going to school was to check on the school for one night. It wasn't like I wanted to stay there for long. I was like, if he says food, I'm going to go check and see if there's food. So that's why I went in his car and I went with him. My whole going was about food. It wasn't about anything else but about food. And as we drove, you know, I asked him, I said, you know, sir, there are more than 2,000 kids in the streets of Kampala. Why would you choose me? You know, and he said, Peter, I just want to be faithful. Of course, I didn't understand what he was saying. But he just said, I want to be faithful. And sure enough, I think God was was good enough to listen to what he was saying. And, and I went to school again. The reason why I stayed in school was because 
the food. So once we go there, I got lunch, you know, and then he said there'll be dinner. So I waited for dinner. So he said there'll be breakfast. I waited for breakfast. And then I started the pattern, the pattern of what do I do to get that food? What behaviors do I have to change so to keep up that food? For example, I used to steal, you know, food especially. But now I was living in a dormitory. I was like, wait a minute, if I steal that food, I'm going to be in trouble. So that means I won't get that food, you know. He gave me shoes for the first time at 16. I had never had a pair of shoes. And I was required to wear shoes in class. So I was like, I don't like shoes. But for me to keep that, to go eat that food, I think I need to keep on the shoes, you know. And then I would go, well, for me to go and have a next meal, I need to stay and go to class. So the little glimpse of hope and little steps is what really helped me stay longer and finally really see what God really had for me. Uh, so that's really how he rescued me uh, from the streets by the promise of just a meal. Wow, the power of a meal and such a basic need, but one where you had experienced food insecurity your entire life at that point. And it eventually, it went beyond school. You were also invited to church. Is that right? Yes. You know, I think all this time, I think I, I really looked at him as if something's wrong with this guy. Why is he so kind? Why is he so nice? Why did you put him in school? So his kindness just kind of put me at a par, like something is weird about him, you know? But of course, he invited me to go to church. And that's when I began to realize like, oh, this guy loves Jesus. This guy loves God. But also, his kindness, he didn't tell me about the gospel. He didn't share much, but he lived it the way he treated me, the way he affirmed me. He used words of affirmation to encourage me every day he saw me or every time he came to school. So the things he did and said really began to really give me a glimpse of like, you know, I want to be like him, you know. And there's something he has that I don't know what it is that I really want. And that was his faith, you know, that he really lives his faith every day. And that's what compelled me to really want to, you know, learn more about Jesus. And, and that's how I came a believer for sure. But it was more of what he did than what he said. And that changed my life. And then later, he introduced me to his family. And I can remember the first time I went to his family. It was So it was after church. And they had a big, you know, uh, lunch on the table. And they invited me like, hey, Peter, could you sit? You know, on the table, I was like, I don't think I deserve to sit on the table because I am I am nothing, you know. But also I sat by the exit door because I thought he's going to beat up his family. So if he does, I better know where to go. I better know my exit out because that's what my father would do. So I thought every father, that's what they do. So I asked him, I said, can I serve my food but eat from outside? They said, OK, but you have a seat, you know. But slowly, I, I, it's not like I, I was there. I think I was waiting for chaos anytime. But it didn't come. It didn't come. And I was like, wow, this man is like, I thought it was a show. Like, wait a minute. He didn't curse anyone. He didn't throw food at anyone. Like, man, this is really cool. That's when I began to see what a family looks like, what a dad looks like, you know, what unity and love really looks like. By him inviting me in his home, that truly began. Now I began to dream, like, if we ever have a family, I want to have that kind of a family. And that really began to change on the way I looked at myself. But also I began to dream bigger, you know, before it was about food. But now I was like, well, there's food. 
there's school and I can see a good example of what I can be in the future. So maybe I should, you know, uh, aspire to, to go beyond what they're showing me or beyond what I think I can go. And it's neat that he saw more in me than I ever saw in myself. And that was really neat uh, that he loved me despite of my, my behaviors. Hmm. Well, and it's so interesting to hear how the journey unfolds because it, it was a process to come to know the Lord and to trust him and see this man's kindness and family and trust in some of those human relations as well. And yet when we're looking back at the process, there were some things that you had to unlearn as well. So Peter, will you share the story of why you were resistant to play with children after you obediently had attended church one of those first times. Yes. So, the, you know, one of the teachers or the, the, the Sunday school teacher said, hey, could you go play soccer with other kids? So I was like, mm, no, I know what you want to do. Remember, any kindness to me was a sign of abuse coming anytime soon. So when she said, hey, would you go play soccer with other kids? I said, I st- you know, I just didn't respond. I just stood there, you know, and then she left and came back later and said, Peter, I asked you to go play soccer. Why didn't you go? I said, I know you want to abuse me. So bring it on. It was more like I'm ready to fight. You know, just just bring it on, you know. And I mean, you should have seen her. She just looked at me and was like, Peter, you, you know, he said these words that I remember to this. They said, Peter, you have a potential that God has given you. And it's my job as a social worker or a teacher to help you if you feel that. I mean, to this day, I can remember what I was wearing, what he said, because I had never heard that kind of kind words from a stranger who did not know me to say, you have a potential that God has given you, and it's my job to see that potential fulfilled. I mean, that really changed the way I looked at myself, but also just really helped me see how God saw me, how God loved me, uh, and that was really uh, needs that a stranger could could show me. To this day, those words still ring to my head, you know, and that's what I get to use with my kids as well. That you've got a potential. It's my job uh, to God who's brought me in your life to to make sure that potential is fulfilled. You know, it is incredible to think of the power of words, and I just remember being so struck. I think it was on page seventy five when you processed through and you had realized. I think your quote is. Every time I had ever tried to act like a child and have fun, I had ended up being punished. And when I read that, I just remember it made sense why you would be resistant to go play soccer, even though it was something you loved, right? Yes. You know, to me, it was what she said. I said, hmm, she's setting up for, like, she's setting me up so she can abuse me. That's in my head. That's what I was thinking. You know, danger, danger. Remember, as I said, for us, any kindness followed with abuse. And I think that really helps to think about the child or the person in our life who's experienced trauma, that that thought process is very different or the way that they're receiving kindness they have a whole backstory as to why it makes sense to them to be on guard. Yes, you know, you know, because it was really, you know, in, in some, and I'm a, I will get to, to me being a dad to kids from hard places, you know. Yeah, that's really part of the trauma that tells us that flight mode or freeze mode or safety is, is what we think of and how we respond is always the opposite of what the other person expects, you know. Uh, so I had to learn really quickly on how to. And that made me really relax. Like, wait a minute. 
you mean I can go? And I think that's when I began seeing myself as a human being like, wait a minute, I'm not a garbage as my father said. I am not as useless as my father said. I am not as nobody as every street people called me. I wasn't garbage anymore. That really that began to build in some way, not pride, but somehow a sense of, you know what? I think I am normal. I think I'm human and I deserve to go play with others. I deserve to sit on the table. But that would encourage me to, to have confidence that I was okay. And now a brief message from our sponsor. Zimmerman Builders, based out of Roanoke, Illinois, has been operating for 26 years. Dennis Zimmerman and his team started with a bedroom remodeling project and have now grown into building custom homes in Woodford, Taswell, Peoria, and McLean counties. They also specialize in interior room remodeling, such as kitchen and bath, as well as exterior projects, such as decks and outdoor rooms. Dennis actually did our personal kitchen remodel and we could not be happier. Do you have a siding or roof project you'd like a quote on? They'd be happy to accommodate you in whatever home improvement you're thinking about, whether it's window replacements or building your dream home. They also have experience in commercial renovations. By listening to your ideas and expectations, they are dedicated to include their clients in every part of the decision-making and provide their customers with top-notch craftsmanship with an eye for detail in the completion of their project. Contact them today through their webpage at ZimmermanBuildersInc.com or through their Facebook page under Zimmerman Builders Inc. That's Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N Builders I-N-C.com. So give Dennis a call today and let him put Zimmerman Builders 26 years of experience to work for you. Thanks for your sponsorship. Peter, after you graduated from high school and you were feeling more hopeful, you still write that you were missing something. So what was it? You know, so once I finished high school, so I went to, before I went to university, you know, I was asked to go rescue children in Rwanda, you know, and because I speak the language and my, my first friend said, you know, it would be good to go rescue the children. But there was something that I was missing. I think that Here's, here's the truth. I struggled with anger towards my dad, that I understood the gospel. You know, I think for me, you know, the Bible says, forgive even those who've wronged against you. I'm like, no. I mean, yes, we can forgive some people, but there are some we should not. And that includes my father. So for me, I was holding on the anger towards my dad that I couldn't have both. I could not be a believer and have that towards my dad. I wanted to go home you know, now that I was, you know, 19, 20, and I wanted to go harm my my dad. I wanted to break his leg or his arm, like put a mark, like, hey, here's what you did for me, and he's payback, you know? So I think understanding God's word and what I wanted to do, like, just didn't match. I was like, okay, the Christian thing I'm going to put aside until I punch my dad that maybe I might think about that. So my, my whole idea was hatred towards my dad until I arrived in Rwanda. When I arrived in Rwanda, I saw more than 2,000 dead bodies on a day. And I was like, I am going to die. There's no way I can go back. And I turned to the driver and I said, look, you know, I think I'm going to die. So please, could you, could you, uh, could you pray for me so I can go to heaven? And he said, Peter, you, go, you walk for compassion. You go to church. You are a believer. I said, no, I look like one. I act like one. 
but I don't know him as my Lord and Savior. And that's how I really became a believer because I saw the anger they had done. I saw what they had done. And I, you know, I was pointing a finger like, how could they do this to people? But I was looking in my own heart saying, but I'm capable of doing the same to my own father. And that's when I realized that Christ died for me. I don't have to do this, you know, and that really helped me in some way uh, to forgive my dad because I wanted to go to heaven, you know, uh, and that's how I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Wow. Oh, I did not know that was the exact moment. That's incredible. And so was it in an instant then that you were able to get rid of the hate for your father or did the Lord bring you through a longer journey? Literally, it was instant because I felt like I lost 100 pounds, you know, (laughs) because I think I had carried all that anger for all these years, you know, realizing that that wasn't my job to punish him. That wasn't my job to also carry that hatred towards him, that that was God's part to play and my part to play was to forgive him. But also, I think I didn't know, I saw how he would have affected my future and I didn't want him to take my future away because having that hatred I knew he would truly take over my own self, you know, and I didn't want that. I didn't want the past in some way to determine my future. So letting go was the best way I can start afresh to say, God, you have whatever you have for me. And I'm going to walk in that way without really bringing the the past to drug into the future. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. That's incredible. And then what was the first step that you took to not letting your past define you? Well, so then I began to say, look, you know, I'm going to use the past for good. I'm going to use what I went through for good. So, for example, you know, I think he taught me well. My my first parents, they taught me the life of Joseph so well. He would always say, Peter, do you remember what Joseph did? I'd be like, "Uh, yes. You remember when his brothers found him, what did he say? I would always say, this is what he said. He said, for what you meant for evil, God used it for good to save lives. So he helped me understand that you can use your past to save lives. You can use your past to be good as well. And I think that really helped me to see it in a positive way. That yes, I would never wish any child to go through what I went through, but neither would I ever exchange it that way. That for me, the love to help others the love and mercy that Christ has towards me, I understood it so well because I knew that well, you know, that whatever I went through, that he was good enough to really help me overcome that. And I think that's really what helped me, uh, I don't know, pursue the future without really, no, like I wasn't dragging the, the, the past, but I was using it as a foundation, you know, have empathy towards others, you know, be positive even when things are not, you know, see the best in others. And I think that really helped me excel uh, in anything that I did just because I, I wanted to use it for good. And will you catch us up on the process then of coming to America and how it eventually led you to become the difference maker you are today? You know, so, you know, when I came to the United States, I struggled. I think my first day I saw how much food was thrown away. And I think I struggled with God, like, God, you can't love us the same way. Remember, I had grown up from a family where some of my my nieces and nephews died because of food. You know, if you don't have food and you get malaria, your life is, I mean, goes so quickly. And I struggled. Like, There's no way you can love us the same way. You know, the others can have so much throw away and others just literally die without. And that really shook my faith, you know, 
But then I think Psalm 139, I don't know how it helped me. I saw how David looked at his life, how God hemmed him in his mother's womb and how that was too much knowledge for him to understand. And in 14, he says, for you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That I was like, wait a minute, this man so God's in the intricate on how he made him, not what he had, you know. And that really helped me to know that God loves us despite of what good or good or have or don't have because he made us special in his image. And that helped me to, to really not really look at things, food, and say that is the sign of love, but rather who he made us. And, you know, and I looked 1248, how much is given, much is required. Like I felt like I had been given so much knowing about foreskin, like I have to do something, you know. Someone loved me when I was unloved. Someone loved me when I was unwanted. Someone was there in every way, shape, form, and changed my life. Like It's my opportunity to do the same. But I had traveled over the world. I had never seen a black person adapting in Ethiopia, in Uganda, or China. You know, they were always Caucasian. So I thought you have to be Caucasian. Well, I believe the lie to adapt. So while in Ethiopia, I approached one of the social workers. I said, if I need to adapt, what do I need to do? She said, well, you're, you are not American. You are male, so you cannot. You have to be a female or from Europe or from America. I was like, okay, I don't. So for me, walking in the first gear, I thought at least they will allow me to mentor. So for me, I walked in to mentor teenagers, you know, to which the social worker said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? I was like, me? I don't qualify. I'm single. She said, who told you that lie, you know? And right there, as soon as I knew I could, I signed the paperwork. It was on a Monday. And I began in my MAP class to be licensed as a foster dad on, on, on Thursday, you know. And five months later, I had my first placement, you know. But again, I had gone through every trauma most of our kids have gone through that I wanted to really be there for them. But two, you know, now an American, uh, as an American, like I knew this is my role, my community. These kids don't belong to some, someone else. They are our kids that I needed to take part in really helping them and really help their parents as well. You know, I know on the streets of Kampala, most people would say, what a mother will let their kids be on the streets. But no one knew what my mom, my mom was going through. And I think understanding that, that I wanted to bridge the gap between me as a foster parent and their parents as well on how I can help them so they can really have their kids back. And that was really my journey of being a foster dad. And, and it's been amazing. I've had 27 children and I've adopted one and I'm in the process of adopting two and I have five right now in my home. Oh, my goodness. That's so incredible to hear that journey. And that's been over how many years now? Uh, it's been five years. Yes, it's been five years since I've had uh, those kids. You know, I've adopted one three years ago, Anthony. Uh, it's, it's truly been a joy. And I have extended family as well. For most kids who are unified with their parents, it's been a joy to have like aunties and uncles and I get to hear about my kids and it's truly been a joy. Well, it certainly sounds like you are such a perfect fit, the man for the job. And what has your experience then been like as an interracial family? Oh, <laughs> I mean, that has been really fun and, you know, good and bad as well. I mean... It, he's he's a three things, uh, four things that I've learned through my journey. When I was learning to be uh, to be licensed, I realized that everyone was looking at me like, what is he doing here? You know, but really they had never had a male. You know, I was in Oklahoma who was going through that, so it was unique for them. Then I was like, wait a minute, 
they're no men. So then I said, ready to use my social media. And my journey as a foster dad to inspire other dads. The other parts, you know, my kids are, are Caucasian, you know, I realized that, wait a minute, you know, I can really, really share empathy, you know, uh, if I can love my kids this way, that maybe others should love each other that way. You know, I'm not into protesting or nourish on racial issues, but I wanted my life to be a protest, you know, that I really wanted to show empathy towards those that need us, that maybe someone would have empathy towards others and me as well. The other part was, you know, I come from a colonial country where, you know, uh, we are colonized by the British and in some way they, they've instilled in us, like white people come and they do good thing for us and we, we receive. And I thought, that's not, a, that's not true. And I wanted to change the narrative. That yes, my kids look different. Yes, my kids are, are Americans. But when God intends a family, that's a family that he's given me. And I wanted to show others that we can all take part. We can, as an immigrant, that we can all truly care for our loved ones. Then the other one was, you know, I think male we've been told, you go work and come home, you know. And in my case, men who are dominant and abusive in some way, like I wanted to change the narrative that I can be a tender, a good dad, you know that it's not just a job for moms, but for all of us to truly be responsible for our little ones. And that's really been a joy. Yes, they've been called, they've called police on me like eight times, but even that, that I've come to learn to say, for the outside, whatever they think of me, they should not take away the goal and my calling uh, to be a force to die, but rather not ignore, for sure, be aware of it, but really not let it take my time uh, and do what God has called me to do. And that's been my joy, really. Hmm. Well, your joy and your perspective and your forgiveness and your accommodation of others and refusing to be offended, it is all so inspiring. Have you checked out our library of articles available at thesavvysauce.com? New posts are added multiple times a month related to parenting, intimacy and marriage, personal development, habits, and other topics connected to what we discuss here on The Savvy Sauce. If you sign up to join our email list, you're also going to enjoy little extras delivered straight to your inbox. Our hope is to encourage you to have your own practical chats for intentional living. So these freebies will include things like questions that you can ask on your next date night, safe resources to read to promote enjoyment in your intimacy and marriage, or questions to ask your kids to connect at a more relational level. We hope you check out all the available reads at thesavvysauce.com under the Articles tab. What are some practical parenting lessons that you've learned, especially as it relates to nurturing and raising children who have trauma in their background? You know, yes, I'm a dad from kids from hard places. You know, I think I revisit my own life, you know. I stole not because I love to steal. I stole because I wanted to survive. It was the only way I knew how to find food, you know. I fought a lot because people beat me every other night. You know, and it was the only way that I could protect myself, you know. So there are things I did because it was the only way I knew how to survive. I didn't trust people, friends, well, I don't know how to make good friends because I always thought good people harm people, harm us. So for me, if someone was kind, I would retrieve, do the opposite. Like, no, don't get close to me. So in some way, understanding that has helped me to truly see our kids where they come from. Rather than focus on the behaviors we get to see every day, but rather focus on where is it coming from that can truly help them really 
in some way overcome what they've gone through. And it's not a weekly issue that we have to deal with. This is will take years before we can help these kids. You know, sometimes my kids, they steal food and hide it. It's not like they are stealing food, but they know there's, there's, there's not going to be any more food, so I better take what I can. But how do I ease them to say, hey, for the next eight months, how can I teach my child to know that it's going to be okay? And I found ways. First of all, I put food in front of them as much as I can. The other part, I get to write their names on the milk. On It's a pint milk for everyone, but I get to write each one's name so they know every time they open that fridge, my name is written on that milk. So that means I will have milk. Rather than worry going to bed, oh, is there going to be milk for me? Well, your name is on it. So looking for things and doing things that will help them ease of what they are worried of or the, the freeze mode, you know. You know, I've had kids when I ask them to do something, they don't respond. And then I say, why? They're like, well, I don't I don't understand you. You're speaking on a low tone. You're not yelling. So I don't know if it's urgent. I'm like, oh, no, you know, because they were used to being yelled at. And that's when how they responded. So for, for them, for me to become wasn't something they are familiar with. So I had to really rely on how to really say, hey, you know, I mean it. I'm not yelling. Yelling isn't the best thing, but I want you to be aware that I would really like you to help me do this or stop doing this in, in a good way, you know? Advo- advocating for them at school, you know, the teachers are able to see the behaviors, but really for me coming alongside the teachers and say, hey, my child, when you see sign one, two, three, four, here's what you can do to help him, you know? And I think my kids seeing that I go that far to tell the teachers on how to help them really shows them that, hey, dad loves us and he sees beyond the behaviors we get to do that he wants the best for us. And it's something I have to do over and over and over and over again. And on my side, I've come to learn that it's not my job to take away those traumas. My job is to create space and room for them to do it on their own, at their own time, not my time, you know, but their own time, you know. My kids, yes, sometimes they use the, they're, when they're mad, they will call me every name there is. But to know, hey, Peter, it's not about you. You know, it's not you they are cursing. It's really what they are feeling inside and learning how to remove myself from the situation and say, it's not about me. It's not about me. And I'm able to listen and be there for them because I'm not taking it personally. You know, I'm learning to remove myself, but at the same time, be there uh, as a parent. And that has really helped me navigate, you know, helping kids uh, with trauma uh, as well. And I've heard you say before that you have to sometimes wait hours to help calm a child down. And then when I heard you say that, I was just thinking of all your responsibilities as a single father. And so it makes me wonder, how do you actually get everything done with all the demands for your time and attention? Oh, Laura. Oh, gosh. You know, I think I've learned routines. You know, I've had, I've learned priori- priorities as well. My kids are priorities. Sometimes seeing they, they're going through that they need my attention. You know, I have different ages as well. You know, that I have found a way on where, you know, uh, how I, they go to school at different times, how I really devote their time. You know, my teens come home earlier, so I get to spend three hours before the little ones come. So what do I do while the other ones haven't come? Yeah, the ice cream, the playing, the going driving, things that, again, that I can do with teenagers that not necessarily I can do with the, with the little ones. 
and they get to really learn that and understand that as well. But routine, routine is my cup of tea, you know, uh, knowing how to really bring in every child, but also understand them individually, you know. Uh, I have a daughter. I've always had boys, but this time I have a girl and she's the boss of the house, I'm telling you. <laughs> You know, but learning to listen rather than, you know, give her a solution, but to say, okay, dad, I'm going to sit here. She's going to paint my nails and walk on my hair that I don't have. But that's the dishes. They'll come later, you know, uh, and that has really been helpful for me to know their needs. Pure, pure, English is my fourth language. Sometimes I can't find the word to say, uh, but priorities is, is what really works for me, for my kids. Wow. Peter, then also I'm curious, because as you're fostering, there are certain things that you can't do with disciplining, but you're trying to foster this loving environment. So what are some practical ways that you do train your children to grow in character? Um, well, so my my foster parents, they, they didn't tell me. They walked with me. They showed me, you know, if they wanted me to go clean they would clean with me if they wanted to show me how to make the bed they'll help me make the bed with you know so they they always walked with me so i know kids emulate what we parents do so i've learned that i'm the not the best example but i'm the best billboard for them you know so in some way to know like there's some things i like to do but for the sake of my kid i think i need to learn how to do this so they can you know learn the, the character in doing so you know you know, also really being honest about my own journey, you know, you know, kids steal. And I would tell them, like, look, I used to steal for life to eat every day, you know, but a stranger helped me. I would have gone to jail or never met in life, but he helped me. And that's how I survived. And then we look for a solution. I say, OK, you've been stealing candy. Tell me, how can I help you so you don't have to do it? Well, if you give me some allowance, I'll say, Absolutely. $2. Every time we go to the store, you have $2 to spend on anything you want, you know? And I can assure you, those kids have never, never touched a candy again because now they had a way to look at it. Oh, I don't have to steal it. Here's what dad has helped me see that when you have a little money, you can go buy something you like, you know? So, really, the usual practical ways on how. Uh, rather than say, don't say it's bad, but really finding the other way uh, on helping them to understand other ways to get that candy. You know, sometimes they do extra work for me and I say, this is for extra candy so they can buy what they want, you know. Uh, but in some way, really living the life or doing things that I would like them to do by them watching me uh, on a daily basis in, in, in a sense. Wow. Peter, I'm just thinking as I reflect, so I'm hearing your themes of grace and questions and stories and generosity and kindness. These are the ways that you parent, and this seems to come out of you toward your children, and it so much points back to Jesus, where they get to experience Jesus through their safe and trusting relationship with you. And that's astounding. <laughs> you know, well, you know, thank you. As I said, my mentor, he showed me how he loved Jesus, but also he really lived it in his life every day. And that helped me. And I adored him so much that everything he did to me was like blueprint, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and in some way has really helped me, you know, learn how to be a parent, 
yelling wasn't his thing, you know. He came home, he removed his shirt, and he would help the kids do their homework and, and clean dishes, something I'd never seen before, you know, that I get to do with my kids uh, as well. But also, too, the honesty is, like, I have learned to have my village, you know, as a single male. I've learned how to find friends that can come alongside. So, for example, I'm part of the, I love small groups and I love singles group. You know why? Because I can ask them to go get me milk at midnight and they will go. They have no excuse to say, my wife. I'm like, no, you're single. Go get me some milk. But also we're giving them an opportunity to serve our kids. You know, I have teenagers. They love to play video games. But how can they play video games with a role model, someone I know that they can look up to? Well, these singles in my Sunday school, you know, they love playing video games. So if they can take my kids once a week for two hours, then they, one, they're being role models. But the other part, my kids are seeing really what other adults get to do in, in the real life. And I can assure you that has changed, you know, their lives. On their birthdays, I'm always waiting for them to say, I want to invite 20 of my friends. But they always invite the other singles to come for their birthdays. I'm like, why? Wow, he's half your age. Well, they show them good role model. That's why. So my village, exactly, is what has really helped me, you know. So to your listeners, if there's any single one thing, how do I do it, you know, I can say, you know, sing, you know, they, I found, you know, other fellow post parents that would help me. I have a girl. When I have issues with a girl, I call my other post mom. I say, hey, how can I handle this? Would you help me come alongside, you know? And they have really helped me be the best friends I can be by being humble and really thinking to the needs of my child and, and my pride. For any caregivers listening, what wisdom do you want to make sure that we hear from you and your experience? Oh, <laughs> caregivers. Hmm. Well, so here's what I've learned. When I became a foster dad, I quickly realized that I wasn't doing a favor for my kids. My kids would have chosen to stay with their parents no matter how bad things were. But rather, they came to my life places that they didn't choose to, you know? And I've learned, I've come to learn that, that my job is to truly show them and be there, be there for them, but also to learn how to make sure they are seen. How do you make your child seen? You know, we've come to learn when a kid's crying, he's really asking, I'm hungry, I need you, you know? But how do we respond? The same as our kids, you know? How do we respond when they want to be hurt? They go through trauma. They feel things that sometimes they cannot describe to us, and sometimes it comes the wrong way. But how do we respond to let them have a voice? You know, I wasn't known, but this man made me known. But how can we make our kids known as well? Sometimes they feel I don't fit here. I don't belong here. But how do we make sure that, hey, my son, my daughter, he ought to be seen and I'll do everything I can to be there for them, you know? And the other part is like, you parents, you are amazing what you do. I mean, for what we do for our kids, for what you've given up to just be a mom, a dear dad, it is amazing at a difficult time to know that you have a village, you have people that are rooting for you, you have people that love you, that will come alongside. But for me, what I've learned is that to love unconditional, that means to do things that I don't really like to do, you know, uh, and a sacrifice as well, something I chose to be a parent to kids from hard place, that when those hard things come, but I'm willing to love them no matter what, you know, but I hope you love your kid and hope you, you have, you know, joy and, and praying for them. And I know they will be whatever God has called them to be. And our job is to just be faithful, you know, like my, that man did for me. Thank you for sharing that. And 
Peter, I just can't say enough good about this book. I am putting it on this special bookshelf that we have for our daughters that as they grow and mature, I can't wait to share some of these special books with them. So can you just share where people can find out more about your organization or where they could purchase their own copy of your book? Yes. So I wrote this book, towards, especially for my kids, through all the difficult things we go through that God has a purpose for us, that we don't have to really hold on the past, but we can use it as a, as a future for us. And that's what I wanted to give to my kids. But anyone else going through hard divorce, difficult families, difficult friendship, different work, to know that we look at those negative things and down the road, we get to take them, own them and use it as a foundation to do good for ourselves and for others. So my book, you can find it anywhere, Amazon, Target, Walmart, I mean, name it. You can find my book anywhere. Uh, and it's Now I'm Known. And the reason why I gave it Now I'm Known because this man made me known. And it's my job today to make every child seen, heard, and known. Uh, and so, yeah, and you can find me on Facebook as well as Peter Mutabazi or Foster Dad uh, on Instagram as well as Foster Dad Flipper. I flip houses. And I force a kid. So that's why I have a handle uh, force that flipper on TikTok. Now I'm known and on YouTube. Now I'm known as well. And you supporting me buying this book. Really, you're helping me so I can force the more children, adapt more children and be a voice for the most vulnerable. So in some way, you're supporting our kids as well by buying this book. Absolutely. I can't recommend it highly enough. And Peter, you may know that we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or discernment. And so as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? Finding time for yourself. You know, when my when my glass is full, I have more to give, you know. So I've learned that if it's running, if it's taking my coffee, my quiet time, if it's going to bed early, taking my kids to bed early so I can have my eight hours of sleep, finding time when I get to feel myself has been truly a joy for me. As I said, when your glass is full, you have so much to give. Oh, that is good. And sounds like it would be very necessary in your situation. But really, Peter, your life is remarkable. And I can only imagine how enthusiastic our Heavenly Father will be when he tells you, well done, good and faithful servant. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. And thank you for being my guest. And thank you, Laura, for making every child seen, heard, and known. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. 
we can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished, if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.